Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Discus CEO and President. I always switch those two. Discus President and CEO, Chris Swanger. Chris, welcome. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is happy hour time here while we're doing this taping. So uh, glad to be with you. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's late on Friday. It's perfect time to be just winding down from the week. So uh, yeah, you know, I got a lot of topics to ask you about. So let's jump right in. Uh, What's your, you know, how did you get to where you are today? How did I get here? So, uh, so I'm a Texas, Texas, grew up in Texas, and uh, went to Texas Tech. Uh, And when I graduated, in college in December 88, uh, I literally got in my pickup truck and left Abilene, Texas on December 31st, 1988 and drove to Washington, DC. Uh, always loved politics and uh, uh, signed up as a volunteer for the inaugural festivities that was happening at that time. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was coming in as the new president. And uh, ended up working for two uh, United States senators. And then uh, my first, uh, you know, government relations job. So I, I really have a government relations background. In 1995, I went to work for a company called Allied Demex Spirits and Wine. And at that time, it was a UK-based company. And it was the second largest spirits and wine company in the world. Uh And I worked with them doing uh, corporate affairs, communications, and government relations for Allied to Mecca North America. 2005, uh, Allied to Mecca uh, Spirits and Wine went away. Uh, Pernod Ricard and Bean Global at the time, Fortune Brands, acquired Allied to Mecca. And uh, I transitioned to Bean Global. And uh, for five years, I led their uh, corporate affairs, global corporate affairs and communications and government relations. And then in 2009, the CEO of Allied Demec, uh, he had become the CEO of a, a British technology and engineering company uh, called Smith's Group. And there were a lot of different businesses, Homeland Security, defense, oil and gas, medical device. They were a conglomerate, uh, aerospace. And he asked me to join him uh, uh, to lead building a government relations apparatus for Smith's Group, which was a global company with global reach. And uh, yeah, I left the industry. It was tough. I remember, uh, you know, at the time, I didn't know anything about uh, oil and gas issues or homeland security and defense. But, you know, I had a great relationship with the CEO at the time. So. I made a decision to step out of the industry and take on a new challenge. And I was with Allied Demec for about 10 years uh, when the, the opportunity to come and lead uh, the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States and responsibility.org as well. So, uh, so glad to be back in the industry and uh, uh, recognize uh, uh, this is an important job for the industry in terms of our efforts in advocating for the interests of the industry and uh, been at it for about three, three and a half years now. And it's a privilege and I'm doing the best I can. And I want to, you know, uphold uh, high ethics and high integrity and, uh, you know, knock on wood, we're making a lot of progress over, over the last couple of years. We've got a lot of challenges ahead, but 
it's a privilege to, to be back in the industry and be in the role that I'm in. And it's fantastic. And it, it's an interesting story as well, because in all the people that I've talked to so far who have uh, been in the industry in any number of different roles, maybe one or two of them have left the industry and it's only been through retirement. So, and thus, you know, none have left and come back. So, Yeah. Look, uh, the the Smith's group opportunity, you know, I was just ready for a new challenge and I was really, really intellectually stimulated in learning about all of these different businesses. Smith's group had five different divisions and uh, it was just, I needed a, you know, new challenge at the time. Uh, and, and I didn't look back to, to, to some degree uh, because I was so consumed with the challenge at hand. And then when, when the opportunity came up uh, uh, to sit down and, and talk to the Discus board of directors about leading Des- Discus, I think to some degree, being out of the industry for, for, for 10 years probably helped me because, you know, I came in with a, a fresh perspective. Interesting enough, you know, it, while I was at Smith's group zoning in on Homeland Security issues and defense and medical device and uh, all of the above, uh, I missed the emergence of the craft distilling movement. And, uh, you know, it was just starting to happen around 2008 and 2009. And at that time, I remember, you know, working for being <clears throat> bigger company, we didn't know what to think of it. Like, what, what is going on? Around that time in 2008, there were only like 60 distilleries in the United States. And today there's 2,300. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Discus embarked on when I arrived is, is an effort to try to unify the supplier tier between large and small. And uh, it has been a big focus of ours uh, to play a leading role in support of the craft distillers. Um, And we've made a lot of progress in that regard. You know, 80, 90% of the issues that we grapple with are issues that the small craft distillers and the large distillers should agree on. Right. You know, the DNA of discus is parity to make sure that spirits is treated the same as beer and wine and market access, always guided by responsibility. So, you know, 10 percent of the issues are going to come up on the on the on the public affairs side where uh, it's an issue more important to the to the craft distillers than it is for the larger companies. Right. And that's the trade association's job to you know, navigate that and make sure that we're supporting uh, large and small. And that's, that's one of the complexities with the trade association, right? But our mission is in terms of discus is to be in full support of creating market access, making sure distilled spirits aren't discriminated against and creating market opportunities, working with public policymakers uh, to uh, grow the pie, and that's grow the pie for everybody. And uh, knock on wood, but we're making progress in that regard. Absolutely, and we'll definitely get into the craft movement and, and uh, actually multiple questions that that came out of that answer. Uh, but first, I just wanted to ask, kind of a uh, clarifier for people who may not be as familiar with this, because I mean, actually, it's a clarifier for me as well. Which is, uh, you described just now. 
you know, in, in many ways, what Discus does, uh, who you represent. I'm wondering if you can clarify a little further on maybe who people think you might represent, but who are not your, you know, who, who, who you don't represent directly. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so Discus has been around since 1973. Uh, next year, we'll have, I guess, our 50th, 50th year anniversary. And okay. historically, historically, Discus had always represented, you know, the, the, the very large distilled spirits companies uh, in the world, multinational and all of the above. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the craft distilling movement that, you know, surfaced in, you know, the early 2005, 2006, you know, Bill Owens and ADI and all of that. I mean, it is, it, it is precious. It's a great, great, great American success story. And, uh, you know, that presents all kinds of opportunities in terms of grassroots, uh, uh, leveraging the political equity that exists within our industry. And, uh, you know, our, our large companies fully recognize and appreciate, uh, uh, you know, Discus's support uh, for large, medium, and 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 in the in the big companies as well. So, uh, we represent uh, uh, a big share of the craft distilling movement. Um, certainly, we represent you know all the large distilled spirits companies as well. Uh, Discus is a is a, it, it, we're the leading with all due respect to any other organization out there. Again, been around for almost 50 years. Uh, we operate on about a $17 million budget. Uh, we've got about 48 people on staff that get up every day and are living and breathing about, you know, how do we uh, promote, advocate, and protect this precious industry? Uh, so uh, we also... Uh, about two years ago, we created a partner membership program. So everybody in the supply chain, it can be law firms, it can be glass companies, it can be vendors within the industry. Uh, we created a partner member program to get those organizations uh, invested in the efforts at Discus. And essentially what we're trying to do is unify the supplier tier. And if we're unified on the big issues, uh, it bodes well for everybody. Uh, the, the industry has has enjoyed tremendous growth. Every year, Discus does an economic briefing, and we look at the year behind us. Last year, we reported 12% revenue growth for the distilled spirits industry, 9.3% volume growth. And that's really a testament of the brands that our member companies are bringing to market. The consumers have gravitated to cocktails and distilled spirits, the history, the heritage, and all of the above. Uh, we're soon uh, in a position where we'll, we'll uh, have market share over beer uh, with great respect to the beer industry. Uh, 20 years ago, Discus started mar uh, measuring market share, and we had distilled spirits had 28.7% of the market share versus beer and wine. 
Today we're at 40.7%. So we've gained almost 12 market share points for the distilled spirits industry. And that's really a testament of the, the premiumization of the products, the great products that are going out into the market, you know, and that's nothing against beer and wine, beer, you know, there's certain great occasions for beer and certainly great occasions for wine. Uh, but it's just an exciting time for the industry. Discus over the years has embarked on an effort to make sure that uh, spirits was treated the same as beer and wine in public policy circles and market access, like allowing spirits to be sold on Sundays. 20, 20 plus years ago, in most states, you couldn't go buy a bottle of distilled spirits on a Sunday. There's only seven states left that you can't do that. Uh, and we're zoning in North Carolina, Texas, South Carolina, you know, just for consumers to get access to the great products that our member companies bring to market. Sure. And what this speaks to, uh, in addition to the premiumization question, which I, I'll come back to later as well, um, this speaks to two ideas that you've spoken about in other interviews, which are number one, that uh, discus as you said, with respect to any of the other industry groups is uniquely resourced yeah. to, to uh, act as it does. Um, and that also goes to another term you've used, which is discus as the tip of the spear mm -hmm. in that these other groups are, you know, you're acting in concert, but you're, you being, you know, using the Royal, you, you're very happy to be at the forefront of that and driving it forward. Uh, so it sounds like, I mean, with what might be considered to, you know, objective reserve, a 17 million budget is certainly nothing to, to scoff at. Um, but it seems that you're also able to accomplish significant things with the 17 million budget, 48 staff um, that, frankly, I would almost have expected maybe double that in terms of the lobbying capacity that you guys seem to be activating. Uh, we, 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 we like to punch above our weight, you know, organizations can get too big and bureaucratic, you know, me, you know, uh, I get up every morning with like my, my pants are on fire. So I act with urgency. It's just kind of the way I'm, I'm kind of wired that way. Right. Uh, so it, it's, it's really about putting points on the board. Look, we're, we're always guided about responsibility. I also lead a separate organization called responsibility.org, which is a key component to everything that we do, right? We want those who choose to enjoy alcohol to do it in moderation and responsibly, uh, mm -hmm. totally committed to uh, eliminating underage drinking. It's, it's, at, it's at its lowest levels that's ever been recorded. Uh, we, through responsibility.org, we do a lot of work with the traffic safety community, drunk driving, the 10,000 plus people that die on our roads every year as a result of drunk driving is horrific. And everybody in this industry, uh, should be aware that it, me and my role in responsibility.org is on point working with law enforcement and traffic safety to end that. Uh, it is it is critically important to continue to make great progress on responsibility because that's what helps open up the marketplace, right? Millions and millions and 
millions of people enjoy our products in moderation and responsibly every day. And the more progress we make, you know, anytime bad things happen within industry, what does government do? They retrench, they regulate, they tighten, right? That's a natural reaction, right? So it is incumbent upon us as part of the distilled spirits community to be, be committed to making progress in that regard. And the industry should be very, very proud. We don't run away from the things associated with alcohol abuse and so forth. We take them head on and the industry has a lot of credibility because we do care, but that is something that we can never take our foot off the, the gas pedal on. And it's, it's very, very important. So, uh, it, it it's it's fantastic responsibility.org by the way we had a, an event last night celebrating our 30th year anniversary and the partners that we have forged in making progress it's both with government it's with schools it's with the traffic safety community uh the ceo of mothers against drunk driving was at that event you know that's an organization uh you know, comprised of victims of, of drunk driving, right? Standing toe to toe with our industry. And that's, a, that's an testament to how great and good this industry is because we care. We've all been to events where some poor person has overserved themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and we've got to look after those people. It's going to happen from time to time, right? Just because of the, the nature of our, our products. You know, if you don't eat something all day and you have one and you have another, you know, we've got to look after each other, right? And, uh, and that's an ongoing, ongoing effort. Hopefully Absolutely. I'm going all over the place. I hope, hope I'm not it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back. Uh, I'll always have, yeah. you know, my outline that I'll bring it back to you. We're all good. Um, but no, it, you're right though. It is a testament to have uh, the, to have mothers against drunk driving at this event with, you know, the, the spirits industry's leading advocacy group, because it, it's something that if we look at a hundred years back, I mean, it's two years ago, it was a hundred years since the anniversary of prohibition. And uh, it's such a, a different thing. I mean, you could never imagine Carrie nation being at a discus conference to go very anachronistic on that, but you know, you couldn't imagine it, yeah. but um, the, but the point is that you're right, that it, it serves the industry just as much as it does, you know, all of the country and human Perfect. nature. Uh, to, yeah. yeah. It, it serves them to, to be vigilant about what is too much, what is too little, what's moderation. Um, and uh, no, it, it does speak well to both what has been achieved and the desire for both sides of the issue to continue to work together towards the future. Absolutely. David, I'll tell you one thing, uh, this is on, on uh, a neat thing that happened around 1999 is uh, the folks at Mount Vernon, Mount Vernon, uh, that's the home of George Washington, reached out to Discus at the time. I was a member company at Discus and said, hey, uh, you know, they had discovered that George Washington was a distiller and asked Discus to help raise money to resurrect George Washington's distillery. So Discus and the member companies at the time mobilized and jumped on it. And there is a beautiful, beautiful distillery at Mount Vernon. It's about 14 miles outside of Washington, D.C., where the father of our country was a distiller. 
And uh, we look for every, every opportunity to recognize that. That is the start of the American Whiskey Trail uh, is Mount Vernon. And it is a start of, it is a platform for all the distilleries around the country, 2,300 strong uh, to uh, make great product. It could be gin, vodka, whiskey, brandy, you name it. And, uh, the, you know, is a neat reflecting back on that, the fact that George Washington was a distiller, you know, he was in the thick of the whiskey, whiskey rebellion and all of that type stuff. You know, there's just so much history and, and preciousness within our industry. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's just an exciting time in our industry because we're growing and we're thriving. I know a lot of our craft distillers, everybody is struggling with inflation, supply chain issues, which I know we're going to talk about. Uh, but our job, Discus's job, wearing my Discus hat now, is, is uh, to play an aggressive role to continue to help drive public policy that opens up the marketplace for our brands. Now, every once in a while, we get, you know, change. Sometimes it's hard for people when you want to create change. Uh, you know, there's a lot of change going on in, in the marketplace right now with e-commerce and digital and all of the above, right? Uh, Discus, the three-tier system, I just want to say this, uh, is what makes this industry strong, properly regu regulated, and all of the above. There is no substitute for a great distributor and a great retailer. Uh, uh, they are on the front lines. Uh, but there are opportunities to evolve the three-tier system, uh, to, to modernize it, to accommodate you know, the, the fastly changing marketplace. And Discus is committed to supporting the three-tier system, but also committed to uh, enabling issues like Sunday sales or delivery cocktails to go, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it, the, the term cocktails to go wasn't even, wasn't even around. And on March like 23rd, 2020, so this is 10 days into us all sitting in our homes, freaking out about the pandemic. We sent a letter, a lot of credit goes to my, my colleagues, uh, uh, to all 50 governors, begging them to, you know, make sure that the retail of beverage alcohol may, is maintained essential. And number two, consider creative ways to help our restaurant and tavern and our bar members. And that is how Cocktails to Go was born. And I think now 18 states have made that permanent. And 16 to 17 states have extended it beyond the, the pandemic. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, Cocktails to Go, no doubt has been an econo economic lifeline for our bars and restaurants, which we're proud, we're proud of that. Uh, you know, the, knock on wood, but hopefully we're coming out of the pandemic, uh, getting close, it feels that way. You know, another variant will come next week and we'll be all back cocooned. But, uh, you know, Cocktails to Go is a monumental shift that nobody could have imagined would have happened for three years ago. And it is another building block for consumers 
to be able to enjoy the product in a different format in a different way. And I know I could speak to you uh, just being in New York. We had it for, we had it for about a year. Mm-hmm. Then it expired at the end of an executive order last, last June. June. Last yep. June. It was terrible. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and now we uh, have it again. I'm not, sh- you probably know better than I offhand. I don't remember if it's permanent or if it's semi-permanent to become permanent. I think two, three years. And there was some, there was yeah. some concern. Some of the off-premise retailers were concerned about, you know, the impact to their business, but uh, kudos to, I can't remember exactly how long it is extended. I think maybe, maybe three more years. I, 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 I think that's, yeah. I think that's what it was. It was like two to three years to to basically fix, not fix, but to work through those issues that you mentioned about exactly. concerns from off-premise. And, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and we've got great respect for on-premise and off-premise. And, you know, there's always an economic balance with all of this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but but uh, the governor did a great job in her state of the union, her state of the state address coming out of the gate. Uh, she mm-hmm. talked about cocktails to go. So every once in a while, discus gets embroiled in, you know, uh, industry sensitive or controversial issues between different tiers and so forth. Uh, let me just say this. Our, our intent, we're, we're consumer driven. We're, we're, we're on the side of the consumer. We have great respect for our retail partners on and off premise and have great respect with our distributor partners the beer industry, of course, and in and, and the wine industry as well. A lot of our companies have wine companies as well. So, you know, it's a great industry. Discus's job is to press the envelope as long as we're doing it, guided by strong social responsibility standards. And it's really to drive greater convenience for consumers, right? To put that to a real world example, um, in New York, as we were saying, you know, we had this for a bit, it went away for almost 10 months and then they made it semi-permanent again. Um, exactly what you said took place. You know, the bars and the restaurants were uh, quite happy about it. I certainly took advantage of it as a, as a reviewer and um, taster to get samples and try as many things as I could that I wouldn't have had time for otherwise. Uh, and at the same time, you know, as many friends as I have that either work in or own bars, about the same number who work in or run stores. Yeah. So, so retail side, or sorry, off-premise side, I should say. And so when uh, when Governor Hochul announced, as you said, in the state of the state address that he wanted to make cocktails to go permanent and alcohol to go permanent, it wasn't immediate, of course. It took a couple of months to work through the legislature and all of that, but we did get to a point. But uh, as as discus, when you have this example of an on-premise and off-premise disagreement, yeah, um, where does that put you as as an advocate? And um, you know, do you lean into it or do you lean out of it and kind of let the situation resolve itself? Great question. And I just like to, I had notes April. April 9th, 2025 is how long cocktails to go is extended in New York. So, all right. So we've got another three years. Yeah. So uh, look, discus historically leans in on this stuff because we got to be guided by the consumer. We don't yet know how 
consumer behaviors have changed as a result of the pandemic, right? It was amazing in the beginning days of the pandemic, people were doing FaceTime happy hours and I didn't even know what Zoom was or Teams, any of us. I don't think, none of, I don't think any of us did. It was yeah, new to all of us. Exactly. Yeah. But three weeks into the pandemic, these FaceTime happy hours are popping up, right? So, you know, today uh, people are ordering their groceries online, online. And we don't know if they're going to switch back to go to the grocery store or not. Uh, so we've always got to be guided by uh, driving consumer convenience with great respect to the various interested parties and so forth. Uh, again, there is there is no substitute than going into a great spirit store or liquor store and seeing the variety and seeing the vodka section over here and the whiskey section, and the Irish whiskey section, you know, the tequila section. There is no substitute for that. And those great retailers are great Americans. Right. But so is the bartender down the street uh, in the neighborhood bar or restaurant uh, suffered mightily, mightily during the pandemic and so forth. So there's a fine balance. Uh, you know, Discus's job is to drive consumer convenience beyond on the side of the consumer. Sometimes issues come up where there's different points of view, you know, and uh, I think it, it appears to me, uh, Governor Hochul tried to meet in the middle in trying to address the concerns of our great off-premise retailers and at the same time provide this provision that the New Yorkers learn to enjoy and appreciate. So, uh, you know, that's kind of part of a trade association's job is to kind of get out in front uh, and, and push the envelope. Sure. And I ask because it, while I understand the, and it's grossly oversimplifying, of course, just yeah. for the sake of, of argument and sake of time, but I understand the aspect of, you know, the bar couldn't ha have any bar and a restaurant couldn't have anyone in. So they needed a way to have any revenues at that point on one side. And then you have the off-premise uh, retailers who uh, may not have lost any business or have a shift in business, but not, not any loss to the extent that a restaurant would have excelled. They excelled. You're talking about the... Like, uh, like a liquor store or oh, liquor store. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Uh, uh, 2020, 2021 uh, were, were good years for our, our great off premise partners. Right. While the on premise right. struggled mightily. Right. So, you know, on one hand, I'm thinking this is, uh, you know, I, I understand that off premise might be worried that consumers will just jump over to the on premise. Yeah. Uh, but off the property train uh, with cocktails to go or other um, to go scenarios. But at the same time, I look at it and I'm thinking, you know, one, as you said, you had year over year continued growth through the pandemic for off premise, uh, you know, revenues up across the board, volume up across the board. Uh, and if anything, I would see it as an opportunity for, for partnership between these two sides. Whereas, yeah. you know, a casual, whiskey drinker and by whiskey you can insert any spirit that we're talking about but let's just take whiskey um a casual whiskey drinker can easily buy a bottle of jack daniels or uh, you know any kind of quote-unquote common bottle that they want 
But if it's something that they haven't tried before and they normally go out to a bar to try it first, or that's where they spend a little extra money to have it, it seems like a great partnership opportunity so that you can try something at the bar, try it to take home if that's the scenario you're in, and then you know decide, oh, I really like this. I want to go get a bottle of this. Because if you like it that much, you're not going to, you may not keep going to a bar because then it's going to be much more expensive than having a bottle at home. So, exactly. If I was an off premise retailer, and I'm not, and uh, those, they're great, great Americans, and, and I, I can appreciate some of their anxiety with an issue like cocktails to go, right? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. but we all got to adapt to changing times, right? Uh, you know, Whoever was doing innovation, somebody told me this, and I don't have it right, but, you know, whoever invested mightily in the horse and buggy back in 1910 or, you know, whenever Ford was created, the Model T, you know, and look, our off-premise retailers isn't, I'm not suggesting they're the horse and buggy, right, but you've got to, I'm sure this is a challenge for on and off-premise retailers alike that you always got to be adapting to the, to the market conditions, right? With consumers, you know, uh, Amazon, the, the growth of Amazon over the last 10, 15 years, you know, 20 years ago, you know, uh, it was all about the big box, big box stores. Things change and it is an incumbent upon the spirits industry, the suppliers, to adapt in a change to consumer tastes and profiles. It is an incumbent upon our great distributor partners, which they've done. There's a lot of great three-tier compliant e-commerce platforms that have come up, uh, which are phenomenal. Uh, kudos to, to the industry for doing that. And our great retailer partners are going to have to adjust as well, both on and off premise to adapt to the new, new trends. And we don't really know what the real shakeout is for the consumer, you know, as we start to come back out, uh, come back, come back out of the pandemic. I mean, hopefully people are going to be excited to go to the bar, you know, presuming, you know, most people are vaccinated or I think it's getting to the point almost everybody's had COVID in one form or another. I got it in December. Had it twice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not fun. Uh, and it was terrible for the world, uh, but uh, we've got to adjust and adapt. And whoever doesn't, eventually, you're going to be on the wrong side of that, right? Mm-hmm. So God bless the horse and buggy guys, but uh, you know, uh, you know, they're going to be having driverless cars in one or you know in the next five to ten years. So the world mm-hmm. is changing, and our great industry has to adapt. That said. What is precious about that industry is there is no substitute for going into a great distillery. I mean, the essence of that, that won't change because that is an experience. I think about 20 years ago, Disca started advocating for tastings. Uh, I, I don't have the data in front of me, but Discus was probably responsible in pushing for tastings in the on and off premise, right? So people can try the product, you know, you couldn't do tastings in many states 20, 25 years ago. And that has contributed to the growth that the industry has seen over the last 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, New York itself had the farm distilling law, I believe, 
either 2005 or 2007. I should have the date in front of me as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, in speaking to New York distillers, that's it played a, an incredible role in the growth of distilling in the state because people could now, you could sell on premise, you, yeah. you know, without having to go through a distributor, you could uh, do the tastings on premise, um, all of these things that otherwise it was, it was just impractical, if not illegal before that. Um, and it led to many more distilleries being here than in other states that lacked those kinds of, of, uh, of laws. And I'm proud uh, to say, David, uh, this was pre me, pre me. So, but discus has been the tip of the spear on those efforts for uh, 20, 25 plus years to help do that. And that's why, you know, of course I'm biased, uh, but that's why discus has such an an important critical role to play. You know, the last federal excise tax that we've had uh, was in 1991. And before that, it was 1985, where they increased the taxes on distilled spirits products. And when that happened, sales uh, tank dive as a result of that. Uh, it is, there's all kinds of science about how punitive taxes can be, right? Now, two years ago, uh, in, in, in a great effort with our beer and wine partners, we passed the Craft Beverage Modernization Act. Think about that. Uh, the, uh, we passed a tax cut, uh, which supported the craft distilling movement, the wine, uh, the vintner movement, and craft brewing movement. It's phenomenal. You know, we've got, you know, we probably face 20 uh, state excise tax threats every year. And we're out there trying to prevent that because anytime that happens, that's going to impact distillers or wholesale partners or retail partners and all of the above. So there's, you know, Discus does a lot uh, proactively in support of normalization and market access, but we do a lot as well in defending the industry from punitive tax increases and so forth. And that's critically important because that's an element of keeping the industry prosperous and growing. Absolutely. And of course, it's also something that domestically, at least it's, that can be uh, more controlled just as a, you know, as a U.S. based advocacy group, it's easier than Absolutely. advocating to the U.K. government. Well, think about, I mean, we were we were in the throes on the tariffs uh, over the last four years mm -hmm. in June. 20, well, between 1997 and June 2018, we had 450 percent import export growth between the U.S. and Europe. Uh, in June 2018, when the tariffs went on American whiskey, since that time, Brexit happened with the EU, uh, but we saw a 52% decline in American whiskey exports to the UK and a 37% decline in American whiskey exports uh, to the EU. Thankfully, uh, the final of those tariffs are going off on June 1st where the UK will now remove the tariffs on American whiskey. The EU removed the tariffs, if I remember right, I think it was October 31st, uh, 2021. Uh, so big events like that can have a real impact on the growth and the prosperity of the industry. And we never want to go through what we went through the last four years on the tariffs bit. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that. Uh, discus was on point to try to avoid it, but we kind of got embroiled in some trade disputes not related to our industry, 
and voila, we saw a massive decline in American whiskey exports, massive declines in exports of European spirits that were hit with tariffs put on by, at the time, the Trump administration. So uh, that's why our industry, we've always got to be diligent. Vigilant. Absolutely. Not, not, and yeah. it's okay. I didn't say vigilante. I said vig- vigilant. <laughs> As yeah. you said, it's the, it's towards the end of the day, Friday, where we're all good. Yeah. Um, I do want to delve into that a little bit further. Um, on on the first thing I want to ask is, uh, or rather, the first thing I want to say is that um, yes, the the whiskey tariff that was tariffs, I should say, that were put into effect in 2017, as you said, it really had nothing to do with the whiskey industry. Um, the the rumor, if you want to call it that, that I heard was that uh, the UK and the EU targeted. American whiskey and bourbon in particular, because political reasons. it's yeah. local reasons. It's, I mean, it's made in, so much of it is made in Kentucky still. That's right. And, we targeted you know, Harley Davidson as well, because at right. the time, the Speaker of the House were from what was from uh, the great state of Wisconsin. Yeah. Right. So you got the Speaker of the House from Wisconsin. You got the Senate at that time, Senate Majority Leader from Kentucky. So, you know, so it, it's, it, it seemed purely political because it's not like they wanted to increase prices for their own drinkers on their side of the Atlantic. Um, but taking it back to a 30,000 foot view, uh, call it a failure of the, uh, of the economic education in America, but um, describe for us, you know, in a, in an understandable way, what the tariff, what a tariff means and what it would, what that meant for the American consumer. Well, uh, both in the, the, well, we got hit on both sides. And at one point, we forget about this, we got hit by tariffs from Canada and in Mexico as well for a short time over mm-hmm. steel and aluminum. But uh, we had a 25% tariff on the price of a bottle of, uh, of whiskey. Let's just take whiskey. It got hit on both sides. but And, and that created... Uh, scenario where it was uh, a lot of craft distillers that were excited and invested in going to the European market. Uh, they just shut down. So they stopped hiring somebody as a result of that with those tariffs, right? And lo and behold, a year and a half later, we got hit with the pandemic, right? So it was, uh, we've, we've got economists here at Discus and it had a direct impact on the sale of distilled spirits products across the board. Uh, you know what we're trying to do. Uh, this we're still in this term, but we're going to try to play a proactive role to build back better. Sorry, President Biden. You know to get back those exports of American whiskey and so forth. Uh, Scotch exports, single malt Scotch got hit with tariffs as well. Irish whiskey from Northern Ireland got hit and liqueurs and cordials from Europe got hit. Uh, I think all of that's coming back. And hopefully as soon as June 1st, the tariffs are going to come off with, with our friends in the UK. I was over there a couple of weeks ago, got to meet with Nicola Sturgeon, who's the first minister yes. of Scotland. And uh, we'll be over there this summer doing a big celebration at the U.S. Embassy. One thing I wanted to point out just so everybody is aware uh Discus uh, has what's called a market access program, a MAP program. And we get, give or take about $1.5 million from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
And what's that money for is to promote American distilled spirits exports overseas. So we take that money, take distillers overseas and markets all around the world, uh, uh, set up meetings so they can meet and visit with buyers or distributors overseas to bring American distilled spirits products to markets around the world. That's great patriotism and all of the above. And uh, we'll be leveraging the market access program, you know, to gain that market share back that we lost as a, as a result of the tariffs. And and just to to go back to the terminology itself, so a a tariff is often compared to or equated to, I should say, a tax, and oh, that's okay. not really what it is. So it really is more, and you described it well in terms of who you can hire, what you can, where you can go, it's really more of a, an increased barrier to entry. All day. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So if, cost prohibitive for the little guys, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, look, I can't speak for any of our member companies, but some of our large, large bourbon companies uh, uh, were taking a big hit, but the little guys mm-hmm. just, stood down in promoting the product over over in Europe as a result of the tariffs. It was cost prohibitive. Right. And and that's really the thing to for, for consumers to understand is that it's not as though it's simply an additional cost that you pay per bottle that's going into some government's treasury. Uh, that's not really the case. That's, that's what a tax would be. The tariff instead is saying, is a government saying, it's going to cost you this much more, this percentage or amount more to even get your product here than to market it. Um, so it's, it's very much punitive and, and penalizing as opposed to a revenue generation tool. That's right. Absolutely. Penalizing. And that was, uh, we're, we're now thinking about, you know, now that the tariffs will go off in the UK on June 1st, what can we do with our European distilled spirits industry partners, include the UK into that. Uh, you know, how can we work with the governments on all sides of the Atlantic to avoid this going forward? Uh, so mm-hmm. we're thinking through options on how to do that, because, you know, we got embroiled in this for political reasons, as you said, David. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the Europeans at the time thought, well, if we hit Kentucky, you know, we hit Wisconsin, you know, mm-hmm. this will get this will get resolved rather quickly. And I remember, I think it was like in July. This is before I started started at Discus, but July 2018, the head of the European Union over here and was at the Rose Garden at the White House saying that they were going to find a path to resolve all of this. And we were all you know, excited about it. Four years later, uh, we were uh, still trying to uh, claw these tariffs back. Yeah, but we have a lot to celebrate because now that has ended. Now we got to think through how to uh, protect it from this happening again. And as much as I completely agree, we want to ha- we want to prevent it from happening again. Does make an interesting case study for cross-border uh, tariff implementation. Absolutely. Because as I said, we've gone over that it wasn't related. Like the tariffs originally were on steel and penalizing steel and oil imports and all these different things. But not whiskey. Airbus, bone and Airbus. Right. Yes. The air was huge aspect of that. Um, Didn't have to do with whiskey, but it went after whiskey because of these reasons. And if people understand that, 
uh, to me, that's a great case study for a business school or a business program to go into. Um, I'm always looking for examples because people learn through examples in comparison. So absolutely. absolutely. So, um, so let's see. So after with the tariffs now on their way out, knock wood, nothing else happens in, in the interim. Um, I wanted to, uh, the, it proves a nice shift into the, the advocacy aspect of it, which I want to touch on again. And uh, you said this in, it was an interview with the, um, the still talking podcast uh, that I really liked. It was that advocacy is a state of mind. Yeah. Um, it's a and team with, sport too. It's a team sport. You can't just rely right. on a little discus. We all got to be a part of the process. Yeah. Right. And with that, I wanted to introduce to the podcast, uh, you know, the spirits United platform. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Um, so to me, I mean, I, I definitely would encourage people to listen to the still talking podcast. Um, also distillery nation. Um, I listened to both of those in preparation for this interview and, and both were very informative. Uh, and what Spirits United does, as I understand it, is it's, it's a platform, a crowdsourced platform, if you will, that says, as Discus, you can put out a call to action that says, you know, whether it's a legislative issue or a social, and you can ask people to send letters to their representatives, to the people involved, to yeah. put it broadly, um, and try to affect change through mass action. Um, so, I wanted to ask because it's it's a it's really a brilliant move. I mean, and it's so it seems so simple. It's so right in front of us, but uh, and something similar with like a change.org type thing. But instead of change.org, where it's you know a couple of people starting sure. some advocacy, instead it's coming from the industry advocacy leader, but saying here's how you can help. So um, you know, I just wanted to give you some time to talk a little bit more about that, and also to ask you know was it both in form and function inspired by anything in particular? Yeah, well, I am a thousand percent uh, excited and passionate about Spirits United. And uh, I started at Discus in November, uh, November, 2018. And in late, mid-January, so I've been on the job for about two months. What are we going to call this grassroots platform that we're going to build? Uh, uh, you know, there's 1.6 million people affiliated, you know, by work with the distilled spirits industry in the United States. So I have big let's, visions. And, uh, let's, let's call that, a, that number out again, because that's a huge number. Huge. And that doesn't include the consumers, right? right. So 1.6 million people yes. connected in some way to the distilled spirits industry. Exactly. So I remember in uh, late January, uh, we were, what are we going to call this grassroots platform? And one of my colleagues, well, what about Spirit United? And I was, you know, when somebody says something and, it, you know, we had all kinds of things on, on a sheet of paper trying to figure it out. And when she said that, I mean, Sarah Fitzmorris, by the way, when she said that, it was like, boom, that's it. Uh, it, it, it is, again, it is a little bit like a crowdsource platform, but, you know, I give you an example. In, I think it was in August 2020, 
there was a, uh, 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 an effort by USTR. They were grappling with the tariffs uh, to uh, uh, receive comments from the public on the issue of tariffs. And we generated 20,000 letters, 20,000 letters into USTR. The bulk of the letters that went into USTR that time was by our great people on Spirit United and within the industry. In the final efforts to pass the Craft Beverage Modernization Act, which was the tax reduction that we talked about, in three days, we generated 40,000 letters to members of Congress. The game with the, with the advocacy is you've got to win share of mine, right? Members of Congress, I was traveling the other day in sat right next to me on the plane. I was, I was down in San Antonio uh, meeting with some great, great distillers, Rebecca Creek Distillery and uh, Devil's, Devil's River Distillery. And a member of Congress sat right next to me. Uh, and uh, I had met her before, but a well-known figure. And you just got to realize all the issues that are coming at policymakers, both on the state level and the federal level, education issues, uh, you know, health care, that man on one issues. So for any industry, you got to win share of mine. So what Spirit United is, and for everybody listening, I beg of you, www.spiritunited.org. Go on and sign up. Uh, but what it is, is a platform to make sure that our industry's voice is heard on big public policy issues. It can be done on the state level and on the federal level or even on international trade issues that come up. And it's really, it takes a minute to sign up. You put your name in and your home address and your zip code. And we're able to know who your state legislators are, your state senator, state rep, who your members of Congress are, your senators are. And when a big issue comes up, we'll e email you, call to action, and it'll literally take you a minute, a minute, less than a minute, to fire off letters to those congressional offices or those state offices. And that makes a difference. One of the main reasons why we got the Craft Beverage uh, Modernization Tax Reform Act ultimately made permanent is because of the grassroots effort. So, uh, and we're always competing with other issues. Uh, members of Congress have to grapple with a man in one constituent constituencies and issues. So mm -hmm. uh, we've got about 50,000 people signed up to Spirit United. We're not even close where we need to be because I want 1.6 million people. Imagine, imagine the force we would have on key policy issues for a great industry. And and there's an opportunity to get consumers involved as, as well. So uh, we're looking at how, how do we activate consumers on the platform? Uh, because uh, that, that is even 10 times more powerful. Because if you've got consumers advocating for their brand or this industry, uh, there's a lot we can do from, from an advocacy perspective and good public policy perspective. Absolutely. And to, to insert my, uh, my day job into this as well, um, so in the day job, I work for a 501c3 organization. And as you said, you're constantly fighting for state for um, share of mind yeah. within your sector, then the sector is fighting for share of mind within the other competing interests. And it's very easy to get drowned out. Um, by being a 501c3, we're also limited in terms of what kind of advocacy we can pursue without 
going to 501c4 territory or other um, tax codes. But I am curious, though, if there's an application for for this type of platform in other industries as well. Not that we want to create competition for your industry, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when I when I was in my previous company, uh, uh, we we developed a grassroots platform. I'm trying to remember, I think at my my previous company. We had about 10,000 employees in the in the United States for that company. And we had manufacturing plants all over all over the country. So two things that we did in my previous and I applied it here is uh, first and foremost, we want every member of Congress, every legislator to to visit those distilleries around the country. Because when they go to that distillery, they see the blood, sweat and tears and the passion that those distillery operators have in the product and the jobs that are created, they're not going to forget it. And of course, they try, they try the product, right? So right. Uh, getting them to visit the distilleries and build those relationships is a key to it. When I was at my old company, we'd get them to go to our manufacturing plants, right? And when they mm-hmm. see those employees on that manufacturing line, uh, there, there is no substitute. That's job creation. And then you add to that the grassroots and spirit united. Then, then we've got some political muscle. Uh, uh, and then we start winning share of mine on key important public policy issues important for the industry. Uh, so many other industries do it. The American Petroleum Institute has a platform. I think that's where I can probably stole it from the American Petroleum Institute. They've got a platform called Energy Nation. So uh, as a matter of fact, we we're thinking about Spirits Nation as one of the one of the words, but we thought it'd be too cheeky to steal from the great oil and gas industry. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, and to be fair to that industry as well, they've certainly I mean, they, they've got the advocacy part down. Oh, yeah. Can't argue against that. Yeah. So. Right. I didn't, I didn't, it, it was shocking to me that at the time, Discus didn't have a platform like this. And it really is a rallying cry and it's easy and simple. We try to keep that list fresh. You know, uh, every, everybody that is part of the Spirit United Army, uh, they are precious in their voice. So, you know, we don't use that, you know, we maintain that list and we keep it and we build it every day. Every, every day I'm, have you signed up to Spirit United? You like that cocktail? Sign up to Spirit United uh, because it is it is something great for the industry. Absolutely, and uh, with that, because of the hot topics that we're talking about, uh, I want to just kind of run through a couple of them. Yeah. So, first one, uh, in addition to the to-go liquor laws that we spoke about earlier, the growth of DTC, direct to consumer shipping. Yeah. Uh, this was something, as you said earlier, that a couple of years ago was was not even on anyone's radar. Things like you know Reserve Bar, Drizzly, Flaviar, the, these companies didn't came exist. To the forefront. They came to the yeah. forefront of the pandemic. Phenomenal. Right and right and the pandemic just yeah they shot them into the stratosphere. Um, so I wanted to ask on two aspects. The first one was uh, the what's happening right now with the uh, USPS. Um, in terms of shipping. And then, uh, so we'll talk about that one first, then I'll go to the second topic. Well, so uh, uh, 
we support uh, in Congress the ability for the U.S. Postal Service to be able to ship distilled spirits products through the mail. Oddly enough, thanks to prohibition, you, you can't do that. UPS can ship it. Uh, FedEx can ship it. Uh, so we're supporting for we're supporting legislation uh, called the USPS Shipping Equity Act up on Capitol Hill to allow that. Uh, it's it's economically viable. I mean, UPS and uh, DHL and FedEx are great, awesome companies as well. Uh, there is an important component to that is to make sure when distilled spirits is being shipped to a home, it's mm -hmm. got to be uh, delivered to someone over legal drinking age, right? That is a big mm -hmm. component. And look, uh, you mentioned Drizzly and Minibar, LibDib, uh, Spirits Network, good platforms, three-tier compliant uh, platforms that have really come mm -hmm. to the forefront with the pandemic. You know, that product is... Uh, being run through the great three-tier system, but is also being delivered to the home. So with all these market modernizations that we've had to contend with over the last couple of years, you've always got to be guided by responsibility. Uh, the direct-to-consumer shipping issue is a highly volatile, sensitive issue within, within our great industry. Uh, but uh, we believe, again, let me reiterate, a thousand percent. There is no better marketplace in the world than the U.S. marketplace for a variety of reasons. The three-tier system is the reason for that. Uh, again, no substitute for a great distributor or retailer. But when a consumer, uh, the great thing that's happening, you know, with now 2,300 distilleries around the country is it drives tourism. Tourists coming from out of state, they visit a distillery and they fall in love with a particular brand and they go back to their state. It's not easy to carry on a bottle of distilled spirits on the plane, right? And that product may not be available in 10 states over, right? So we believe some kind of modified form of direct-to-consumer shipping will make the three-tier system stronger. Why? is because it will help create that consumer pool, right? So eventually, mm -hmm. when there's that demand for the product, consumers are gonna go into retailers and say, where's that bottle of X, Y, and Z? You need to get it on the shelf, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, I'm part of a bottle of a month club and I, they're able to ship it to me, but it'll create consumer pool. So, and as the consumer behaviors have changed dramatically, uh, we've got to change with the times. Now, they allow for direct-to-consumer shipping for wine in 47 states. Important parameters have to be in place. Enforcement, making sure the taxes are paid, making sure that the product is shipped to someone over the legal drinking age, right? Uh, for still spirits, there's 11 states that allow direct-to-consumer shipping. And Discus's position is to support it and get it in 47 states. That the, the great three-tier system in direct-to-consumer shipping can coexist. It has for wine and it can be for distilled spirits as well. I recognize the sensitivities to that. You know, our great distributor partners and some retailer partners are anxious about that. Uh, and, and we respect and, and appreciate that. But 
we've we've got to navigate this with care. These are hard issues to grapple with. Uh, you got to approach it with recognition and respect of the important role the three-tier system plays, but you also got to be guided by consumer convenience and uh, what the consumers want. And many times consumers will visit a distillery and then say, can you ship it to me, right? Or, and, and they have to turn that down, right? And we don't want to turn customers down that fall in love with a particular brand. Right. right. And ultimately, we believe it'll make the three tier system stronger. So uh, before I move on to an example that I was thinking of, you mentioned that both for wine currently, there's 47 states that are out D- that allow DTC and then um, 13 states. 11. 11. 11. Sorry. 11 states that allow it currently for distilled spirits. But your goal is 47. I'm curious what the um, what the three well, holdout states are. 50, all 50. Well, our goal of course. Is fine, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious what those three um, the three states are that not even that don't even allow wine DTC. Delaware, I can't remember the other two. Delaware doesn't allow wine direct shipping for some reason. I think I got that right. I'm going by memory, but there's three states. And the wine institute, uh, the wine industry with the great wineries all around the, America, you know, they embarked on this about 25, 30 years ago. It's going to take some time. And, uh, you know, we want to work with our distributor and our retailer partners on ways to make the three-tier system stronger, right? Uh, you know, I, Look, there's great markets overseas, but there is this is the best marketplace in the world. Uh, and we have to recognize that in a very profitable marketplace for those within the industry. And, uh, you know, we've got to navigate that stuff to be very aware of that as we look to modernize the marketplace. Right. We don't want to throw the baby out the bathwater, as they say. Right. Uh, and you don't have illicit alcohol problems in the United States like you do in other markets. And that's due to the three-tier system, the strength of the three-tier system. Now, for us in support of direct-to-consumer shipping, it's got to come from a licensed distiller, right? Uh, You've seen a lot of circumstances where there's these kind of buying clubs on on Facebook and stuff like that, where they're moving product around, special products, special bottles of whiskey and so forth. Uh, that's problematic too, because you, 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 you may never know what is exactly what you're getting, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, anytime you deal with beverage alcohol, it needs to have proper enforcement measures in place, properly regulated, because uh, proper regulation, the three-tier system, how it's designed, is making sure you know what you're getting when it's all said and done. So as these market modernizations come up, really being forced by the consumer, right? We as an industry, we're going to have to grapple with it with great respect and figure out how to be ahead of the curve on it. Absolutely. So uh, in transitioning to the next question, the first one is just to to close out with the USPS aspect of it too. As you said, UPS and FedEx and DHL, right now with the proper licensing and such, you can ship mm-hmm. alcohol. A pro- per li- properly licensed shipper can ship to a properly allowable consumer or end um, user, let's say. Absolutely. 
Yes, they do a lot of training to make sure, just like we're in the process with GoPuff and all these other great delivery companies, Uber, Uber Eats, you got to train, you know, somebody who's delivering McDonald's, right, to a home. You know, if you add beverage alcohol into the mix of delivering to the home, you got to make sure that that Uber, Uber Eats driver or GoPuff driver understands that they can't be dropping that off where there's, you know, you know, nine 16 year olds out there, you know, all excited when that package drops, drops off. Right. I mean, right. that, that, that is a horrific scenario. And when those kids hurt themselves or gets in a car or whatever. So our industry, we've got to grapple with all of these market modernization uh, uh, considerations with great care. Absolutely. And, and so with the, with the USPS versus private shipping, uh, part of the issue too is that uh, and this came up is it it's not explicitly political and I, and I don't want to make it political either um, but it came up in the context of uh, current postmaster and modernizations that he wanted to make was the fact that USPS is it, they just reach more of America than any of these other companies do and in a lot of cases especially with more remote areas they're taking the US the UPS the FedEx the DHL shipments that final step. Um, so in many cases, they may already be handling this in a roundabout way, but to make it legal, explicitly legal for the USPS itself to ship is the next logical step. We've got to pass legislation in Congress and we have a spiritualized grassroots campaign uh, to do that. Uh, so uh, very logical, and it, can, it may be more economical to ship for a distiller uh, to ship through the U.S. Postal Service than some of the other platforms. So uh, it's just, uh, you know, there's opposition on on Capitol Hill for that, uh, respectfully. Uh, but uh, if UPS, uh, yeah, got great confidence in UPS and have great confidence, it will drive a lot of revenue to the U.S. Postal Service. You know, that Absolutely. is an organization that is flushed with revenue because of the world changing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so so it's good government policy, and uh, we're advocating for that up on Capitol Hill. And it goes hand in hand with a, with a distillery wanting to ship, let's exactly. say, out of state. Um, I'm just thinking of, an, of course, an extreme example because it makes the most sense in this. Uh, I have friends in Hawaii who I enjoy we both enjoy spirits but obviously we can't ship to each other yeah um if i'm just gonna sh if i were to ship something of course we're talking legally shipping yeah. things uh you know shipping something to hawaii from new york from using ups or fedex regardless of quality of shipping it's going to be quite expensive yeah. if you can do the same thing as a still and a distillery would face the same costs assuming everything else is legal and and taken yeah. care of but if you can ship a two-day flat rate box from New York to Hawaii for even 20 bucks as a large box, Big it's it, huge difference. And, and it's not even a difference of accumulation or incrementalism. It's it's every package is going to make a big difference for these smaller distilleries. Absolutely. Yeah. And I the reason I was thinking of this too was uh, I recently spoke to Still Austin, another great Texas distillery. Brilliant. Love Still Austin. Yeah. Wonderful Love. distillery. 
And uh, they were saying that, you know, they they self-distribute in Texas and Louisiana, uh, but they do reach 41 states. Uh, I believe they use Reserve Bar as their main um, distributing partner. But uh, they said, you know, they, on one hand, they wanted to keep it back a little bit because they didn't have, they just don't have the stocks to keep up with true sure. nationwide demand. Um, but on the other hand, they have more stock than they would just sell in Texas and Louisiana. So, and this goes back to the point of, of um, the state-by-state nature of this, where a you know a Texas distillery can they they need this three tier partner a distributor partner to reach other areas, and as you keep saying, it's fully within the three tier system. Yep. Um, nothing even close to illegal about it. It's right within the standards. Uh, but I'm curious, looking forward, if the I don't know, if the if the system itself, the three tier system itself, especially on the supplier to distribution connection. Mm-hmm. Um, requires revision so that it's no longer a state-by-state issue, but more of a nationalized or nationalized is a bad connotation, a federalized, um, you know, nature of it. Could it be resolved? Could that those impediments be resolved uh, within Congress? Is yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, the state-by-state nature is is the vestige of prohibition. Um, Correct. And you so, know, through the 21st Amendment, uh, the, the answer to your question is, is no, you know, when 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 they pass the 21st Amendment, uh, look, the states have all authority to regulate the sale and distribution of uh, beverage alcohol. And that was done through that. And uh, it makes our job more complex because we have 50 state regulatory regimes that we got to deal with. Uh, But uh, there's probably not a path uh, to address it from a federal perspective. You know, the three, uh, the Supreme Court has, has taken on uh, these issues with grand home and so forth. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that could be resolved in 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 a Supreme Court case potentially. Uh, but I think uh, you know each state is different, uh, and we need to respect that. And they one state may want to regulate in uh, uh, beverage alcohol one way versus another way, right? And we want to mm-hmm. respect that. Uh, and that's why discus has such an important role because of our resources is we've got to contend with this our efforts to modernize state by state and that takes a lot of time and bandwidth and resources to do that well said and uh thank you for going down the rabbit hole on that one i i it's it's it's, of course it's a big topic it's yeah and and why 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 couldn't this be resolved but you know uh uh, uh, you know, the states are probably, uh, you know, the, well, they are the, the, the proper authority to regulate, you know, apart from the great work that TTB does, you know, the sale and distribution. It'd be a lot easier if everything was done in one fell swoop, that's for sure. Uh, but, but I don't think that's likely. And the states deserve and have that, you know, uh, or, want to have that authority to be able to make their own determinations in, in the in their own states so all right that's fair 
Um, so one last uh, trend that I want to run by you that yeah. touched on earlier, and this I don't want to come back to, which was the premiumization yep. that occurred. Um, so this was something that I think Discus has reported on, multiple other outlets, uh, both advocacy and just reporting outlets have uh, come out upon. This idea that people were not only necessarily buying more liquor or distilled spirits during the pandemic, but that they were buying more premium absolutely, or higher levels of that. So um, I wanted to know, you know, what does that mean for the industry to kind of explore that? Uh, and then do you see that trend continuing or is it too early to tell? hundred percent. So great question. Look, premiumization has been happening within the distilled spirits industry over the last two decades. In fact, consumers are shifting from value to premium spirits categories. Uh, alone, it's accounted for $2.4 billion in revenue for the U.S. spirits sector from 2007 to 2017. Consumers are drinking better and not more, right? We don't want people to drink more because there's implications to that, but they're drinking better. And, uh, you know, uh, we just uh, we have a brand data program and we just launched a luxuries luxury brand data report that we report report out uh, twice a year now. It is the trend. It is great for our industry. Uh, in the early days of the pandemic, we saw uh, consumers purchasing up because they had more expendable income at that time. Right. Uh, you know, hey, instead of buying a $50 bottle of scotch or whiskey or, or, or tequila, we haven't talked about tequila today. You know, I'm going to try a $100 bottle and see what that tastes like. Right. So uh, I think one of the great assets of our industry is to the ability to uh, to premiumize. And I was in Scotland a couple of weeks ago and uh, visited McAllen and Glenfinnick, great, great distilleries, phenomenal. And McAllen had a $93,000 bottle of whiskey. It was born in 1941. So think about it. That was, that was it. Uh, that was, yeah, that was, you know, a, that was the beginning of the, the World War II, right? And uh, uh, the, the, air, uh, the battle over Britain, was happening during that time and a bottle of a barrel of scotch was born $93,000 the, uh, the folks at McAllen were telling me in Glenfiddich uh, that consumers travel all around the world to, to put money down for for that great special bottle of 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 of, of scotch uh, uh, I, I went to a great new facility in Edinburgh uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, uh, the, the Johnny Walker Princess Street experience. Beautiful, beautiful. I got to visit where they make doors as well. And uh, the same is happening here in the U.S. marketplace with American whiskey as well. So premiumization is a good thing. You know, uh, a lot of us are or worried about, you know, hitting some economic headwinds. You know, we may be marching towards a recession. God, God willing, that won't happen, right? But uh, premiumization in this industry is here to stay, and it's what's precious about the industry as well, because 
uh, people are drinking better and not more. And something that's held true through at this point, millennia of human history is that people drink when it's good. People drink when things are bad. People drink when things are moderate. Um, it's always there. Proof, a little recession proof. Yeah. yeah. You've got a little more padding than other industries have for sure. Exactly. Um, uh, fantastic. So, um, you know, of course, being being mindful of time, um, there were two more quest, uh, question categories I want to get to. Um, the first one, I want to close out with returning to responsibility.org because I think it's it's, a, it's such an important aspect of what you do as well. So before we get to there, um, I want to briefly touch on um, uh, on new categorizations of, of distilled spirits. And of course, yeah. this is a whiskey usually whiskey focused podcast and we'll touch on rum or gins. Um, as you said, we haven't touched on tequila today. There are plenty of others that we haven't talked about, but that could be inserted as part of the larger argument. Um, so for, for American whiskey, yeah. um, one of the up and coming categories is American single malt. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying more of them, talking to more of the distillers, spoke to Santa Fe Spirits the other day, Brooklyn Distilling over here in New York, um, any number, and uh, Westward out in Oregon, some of my favorites. Uh, but of course, unlike rye whiskey, bourbon whiskey, corn whiskey, American single malt doesn't have a, a legislative, a, sorry, a legal definition Correct. Um, as those other categories do. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about how as the tip of the spear, how discus works with organizations like the American Craft Spirits Association, the American Single Malt Whiskey Association to drive something, an issue like this forward, um, as it seems that those three organizations and a number of them are. Exactly. So uh, spot on. Uh, so we are working very, very closely uh, uh, with the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. And just this week, uh, sent a letter uh, to TTB uh, with great respect, firing up with them uh, to go forward with that notice of proposed rulemaking uh, to put a, a standard in place for American single malt whiskey. Uh, when I was in Scotland a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about that. You know, there's great, great, I tried a bunch of them, uh, Scotch, uh, single malt scotches. And uh, we are working in collaboration with the Scotch Whiskey Association uh, to make sure that it is in, in respect to other, other single malts around the world and so forth. Uh, sure. We are, it, it is time. And uh, uh, we are very, very committed in persuading and advocating and supporting our great friends at uh, the Tax and Trade Bureau uh, to get it going. And uh, again, we issued a press release on it this week and sent a letter uh, as well. So uh, very, very important. It's time. And, uh, uh, you know, I think TTB is committed to doing it. They just issued, you know, uh, I think it was about a year ago where they were committed to looking at this. So uh, very, very important. It is a great building block in, in supporting the growth of American whiskey in the United States. And uh, it's imperative that this gets done sooner rather than later. So uh, I'm very much a proponent for it. I really hope it, it goes forward. And it sounds like it certainly has good prospects to do so. Uh, 
so that's the for American single mall. I'm curious before we move on to responsibility.org to close out, are there other um, spirits categories that are are receiving that kind of attention or need to receive that kind of attention in a def- definitive way? Yeah, this one, this one in particular is is top of mind for me. Uh, uh, Japan, uh, just about just about six, seven, eight months ago, uh, brought forward uh, uh, a definition for Japanese whiskey, uh, mm-hmm. which Discus was very involved with. So uh, I am not aware of others. Uh, look, Discus represents everybody. We represent our great rum makers, vodka makers. Whiskey makers, of course, from Irish whiskey to Japanese whiskey. So we represent everybody. And if there's an emerging issue or an opportunity, uh, please let us know uh, because uh, it's all about, you know, uh, bringing great new products and innovation into the marketplace and making sure putting forward standards that protect the integrity of those products is a component of that. And uh, Discus is really, you know, in partnership with other organizations, but Discus certainly has the the bandwidth and the resources and the expertise to help navigate those. Fantastic. And uh, with that, we'll move on to our last topic, which is, as I said, responsibility.org. So we've touched on it, uh, you know, periodically through the conversation. Um, it's It really is a separate role it's not like you're president and CEO of Discus and Responsibility.org. It's your president and CEO of this Correct. and this in parallel. Um, so Responsibility.org, as we've said, it's about education, uh, pointing towards moderation as opposed to either on one side, complete abolition of uh, whiskey drinking or prohibition of it again, but also not going overboard, finding that middle ground and getting people there. Um, I'm, I'm curious if going back 30 years, uh, and I know you weren't with Discus then, but um, you know, what, what was the catalyst if there was one for, for responsibly.org coming into being? I think uh, to the credit of those our forefathers, when they thought of this, uh, 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 the industry did a poll at that time uh, where uh, they asked would key stakeholders and in the public policy community be comfortable with the beverage alcohol industry working on social responsibility issues. And at that time, uh, there wasn't a comfort because there was a view that our industry would be conflicted right? We're profit driven and we don't care and so forth. And through the good work of responsibility.org over 30 years, uh, we have developed uh, great partners in traffic safety and education to help us do this. And I'll tell y'all, I'll tell y'all an interesting story. Uh, I think it was in uh, May, May, 2020, the Regional Transport Authority of New Orleans issued a ban of alcohol advertising on all of their their buses and transport vehicles in New Orleans. And at that time, I was wearing my discus hat. And we sent a letter to the RTA in New Orleans objecting to their ban of 
beverage alcohol advertising because it was a violation of the First Amendment rights. So six months later, uh, we send a letter in opposition, basically a violation of First Amendment rights. I fly down to New Orleans to meet the chairman of the Regional Transit Authority because why would they do this? Why would New Orleans, of all cities, do this? And I sat down with them, ready to go, you know, be Mr. Lobbyist. And they told me, and I didn't realize this, it was an aha moment for me, that New Orleans is unique, like Seattle, where the schools are all charter schools, which means all the kids in New Orleans ride the public transportation, the buses Mm. and the trams to go to school. You could have a, a, a kid on one side of the city of New Orleans riding the, the city bus on the other side of town to get to the school because it's charter schools. So when they told me that, I was gobsmacked by it, right? We don't want, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've got two boys, 13 and 16-year-old. They're not little, little boys anymore. But uh, I was like, oh, my goodness. They introduced me. Uh, to a local artist, a guy named B. Mike, Brandon uh, Odoms, mm-hmm. who does empowerment art. And I went and visited his studio. And I'm proud to say we withdrew our opposition for the Regional Transit Authority to, uh, not adver- to allow advertising for beverage alcohol on buses. And uh, wearing my responsibility.org hat, uh, we worked with uh, B. Mike, who is a very up-and-coming, prominent artist, uh, to take a program called Ask, Listen, and Learn. Ask, Listen, and Learn is a program that helps educate schools, parents, uh, and young kids about alcohol and the effects of alcohol and why you shouldn't drink when you're under legal drinking age. And last month, we were in New Orleans. We had a city bus wrapped with B. Mike's artwork with the Ask, Listen, and Learn program about starting the conversation. All the science. If you talk to your kids when they're in fourth, fifth, sixth grade about alcohol and the choices that they're going to have to make when they get into that peer pressure age, all the science by government, a government science, is they will make better decisions about these peer pressure points when they're 15 and 16 at that age, they're not listening to you as much, right? They, mm-hmm. they're full of yeah. right? So mm-hmm. last month we had a, a, a city bus wrapped with B Mike's art with the ask, listen, and learn program. Check it out. www.asklistenlearn.org. And we are rolling out the ask, listen, and learn program in all the charter schools in New Orleans. Again, that is where, you know, the industry's got to be mature. And uh, we didn't realize that the city buses were, uh, you know, transporting kids to schools. And uh, we pivoted and we learned from it. And, uh, you know, that's an example. And hopefully it's a positive example how uh, uh, we can pivot a little bit and learn from you know, uh, learn from circumstances. Uh, So that is an example of what responsibility.org does. And I could tell you, even though I have to wear two hats, uh, because uh, uh, 
I have not been conflicted in wearing my discus hat versus my responsibility.org hat because they complement each other. Nobody in this industry wants anybody to undergo harm as, as it's associated with the abuse of our products. Uh, this industry is not wired that way. And uh, uh, the, the efforts are complementary. It's good for the industry. It's good for community. And hopefully, you know, as we roll out the Ask, Listen, and Learn program in New Orleans, you know, at some point, one of those kids where their mom and dad learned to talk to them when they were like in fifth and sixth grade, it's almost like talking about sex. It's not something you want to talk to your kids about. It's kind of weird and uncomfortable. And you wouldn't naturally think, why would I talk to my kid when they're in fifth grade about alcohol? right? You got to model proper behavior. That's number one. Parents got to, if they enjoy alcohol, they got to do it in moderation appropriately because kids watch, right? That's number one. And number two, you got to talk to them early. All the signs suggest that, right? So if we can save a life uh, or influence that kid when he's in a peer pressure moment, when he's 15 or 16 and his big brother is getting them product or whatever, uh, you know, that can make all the difference in the world. And it's great for the industry. And it's, 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 uh, we've got to be on the front lines to protect the industry. And a component of doing that is the work of responsibility.org. And to that, uh, that speaks very well to uh, children in particular and underage drinking in particular. Uh, And then, so my last question of the evening for you is, for the adults side of it, uh, which is, it's something you mentioned originally on, I'm sure you've mentioned it elsewhere, but on the Distillery Nation interview, where it seems like every week there's a new study that comes out that says something about how much alcohol you should or should not be consuming. Could be more, could be less, could be none, could be, you know, anything. Very few of these are peer reviewed. A lot of them are observational. Um, and it can seem like a lot of just noise coming at a perfectly legal adult consumer to say you shouldn't have anything, you should have this, that, whatever. Um, for adult consumers who uh, need that similar level of education just in a different way, um, how should we react as adults to, to all of these you know, call them articles to be generous. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Discus uh, strongly supports. We've got we've got we've got uh, someone that leads our science and health function. Her name's Dr. Amanda Berger. And uh, look, with all of this, and you know, this has come to light uh, during the pandemic. You know, with the debates over sound science and you know, mm-hmm. wear masks, don't wear masks, get a vaccine, don't get a vaccine. You know, that the public debate within the pandemic, you know, that, you know, that issue even exists with within research around beverage alcohol as well, right? So DISCUS strongly supports uh, sound science, evidence-based science when it comes to beverage alcohol consumption. That's number one. Uh, And we're a big proponent of that. Uh, Look, for me, I'm a type one diabetic. Uh, I don't know if any of your viewers are aware of aware of what type one diabetes is, but I've got to do everything in moderation to protect my health because my body doesn't make insulin, right? So I shouldn't overconsume alcohol because I've got greater pressure 
on my organs being a type one diabetic, right? I've got to live a balanced lifestyle. When I go home tonight, I'm going to the gym because I've had, you know, uh, you know, a pretty full week, right? So I have to exercise. I have to have a balanced, balanced diet. I have to drink in moderation, right? Uh, in me having diabetes, I'm, you know, I'm the head of the distilled spirits council, right? I am forced to, or I'm not going to live very long. Right. And I want to see my boys get married and, you know, have a great life and all that type of stuff. So everything in life is about balance. And I think that's true when it comes to alcohol consumption as well. Uh, the U S dietary guidelines, uh, is updated every five years and it came it's, it's within the dietary guidelines that the standard diet for beverage alcohol for those who choose to drink is two drinks a day for a man and one drink a day uh, for a woman and uh, we are very active in working uh, with the U.S. dietary guidelines when they renew the guidelines every five years. That is all guided by science. And uh, what I would just say is in life, in everything, uh, not that I'm any kind of steward of, you know, to suggest this, but it's about balance. You got to drink in moderation. Sometimes you shouldn't drink in certain occasions and you got, you got to exercise, you got to have a balanced lifestyle. And that includes alcohol consumption as well. Absolutely. And I appreciate it. I think it's a great way to end this out. So Chris, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to talk. So much fun, um, David. Thank you.